already have some questions, and does anyone want to kick us off? Okay, so, hi, my name is Lester. Uh, so I think Pastor Danielle might have asked you part of my question, but what I'll do is share, I think, some of my frustration. Sure. Um, so first off, I guess, um, so I'll start with George Whitfield. So he did a lot for the evangelical movement, and, um, okay, I'll back up. <laughs> um, so first, I guess, where I'm coming from is just, there's a lot of good that the evangelical movement has done. Sure. There's also, you know, a troubled history. Um, it seems like from in your books that uh, you just discussed how, like, the evangelical movement changes um, every so often and how some of the, those movements might have been good, some of those yeah. movements might have been bad. Um, and one example is, like, with George Whitfield, how he was, you know, an abolitionist for a while, and then he started um, an orphanage in Georgia, and yep. his, his orphanage was failing, and so his solution was, we need slavery in Georgia. And so he actually became a proponent of starting slavery in Georgia. And so that's one example um, of just the evangelical movement all over. And then another example of my frustration is um, when we talk about evangelicalism as a whole, um, I consider Martin Luther King an evangelical, and um, you know a lot of the civil rights leaders evangelical, and they were active in politics and did a lot. Um, and just one of the things you said um, earlier was that evangelicals really um, kind of didn't get involved in politics until the 70s, and so I feel like when we talk about evangelicals as a whole, we're excluding certain populations. Yep. Um, so that's a frustration. Sure. Um, and I guess finally, my question. Um, goes into basically just knowing that evangelicals kind of like move around every so often they get inspired by something new and decide to move yeah. into a new movement um, where do you see um, the evangelical movement going um, in the yeah. next coming, you know, the next period that's a great question, yeah, thank you Lester um, I, I think we're at a turning point right now I think we're at a, a kind of a crisis moment for for evangelicalism, deciding where we're going to go. Uh, I, I will develop later where I think we've gone wrong over the last several decades in terms of the religious right, which I think... And by the way, people use the term Christian right. I, I, I resist that term vigorously. I don't know what's Christian about it, frankly. I, I don't see much that's Christian about it. So I use the term religious right rather than Christian right um, myself. Uh, but I think we need to decide what we're going to do. Are we going to take seri the words of Jesus seriously? Uh, Jesus told us to care for the least of these. Uh, I just don't see that in the agenda that's coming out of, out of the religious right. And I think the movement is, itself is very fragmented at this point. Part of it is generational. I think it's very, as telling Kelvin, I think it's very difficult to pass uh, any kind of fervor, but particularly re religious fervor from one generation to the next. So you had the religious right generation of the beginning in the late 70s and, and throughout the 1980s. And those children now are kind of coming into their own, and they're saying, whoa, you know, we don't see the world in the same way any longer. So, I, I mean, I take some hope out of that, frankly, because I, I, I think the religious right has been pretty misguided on the whole. And I think that there's a chance to kind of uh, recover the, the radical claims of the gospel. Um, you know, when Jesus said that, uh, you know, foxes have their holes, and, and I don't get the, the, the whole um, question, the whole quotation, uh, but the people who follow Jesus have no, no place to lay their head. Boy, you know, pretty, makes it pretty difficult to be a capitalist, it seems to me. Uh, that's very serious. 
very seriously. So uh, I think we're at a crossroads, and I'm hopeful. Um, we had a conversation last night about the term evangelical. You know, do we do we discard it? I you know I go back and forth on that. Uh, many days I want to discard it because I don't want to be associated with people who take, other people who claim that 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 word. But the other part of me wants to reclaim it for what it was once was. Great question. So similar. My question was, I think, when I hear this stuff, I was, I was telling you earlier, I feel like I get a little bit angry, sure. very similar to a lesser, sure. in that there is a, an evangelicalism that does exist today that is oppressive of the early roots of social justice, the early roots of feminism, the early, you know, all of this stuff. Um, and so it's a yes or no question, but I kind of mean a fuller explanation. If we were to re-engage with these kinds of issues, social justice issues, um, racial issues, uh, gender issues, including sexuality issues, is, is that actually a reclamation of kind of the original evangelicalism or kind of the roots of Sure. Yeah, I think it is. Us? Sure, I think it is. It's... Um, as, as a person struggling to live his faith in the 21st century, I have two, two um, uh, inspirations. Uh, the first is the New Testament and the words of Jesus, and Jesus is pretty clear about our responsibility to others, yeah. uh, our responsibility to those who are less fortunate, those he called the least of these. Yeah. And the second inspiration I have is what I would try to map out a little bit earlier. That is the, the example of 19th and early 20th century evangelicals. Uh, what I didn't get a chance to develop uh, as, as much as I should, I talked about the antebellum evangelicals uh, with the abolition of slavery, uh, equal rights for women, prison reform. Uh, I didn't even talk about the temperance movement. The temperance movement we think of today as sort of this retrograde sort of paternalistic movement, but a temperance movement in the 19th century was really addressing some very, very real social problems. Yeah. Uh, alcohol consumption was just through the roof compared to what it is today. And with that, of course, you had child abuse, spousal abuse, and so forth. Yeah. And so evangelicals were really engaging in, in a, a worthy social reclamation effort with, through the temperance movement. But the, these impulses continued into the 20th century. Now, one of the great champions of evangelicalism, progressive evangelicalism, was William Jennings Bryan, who was very much uh, uh, decrying the ravages of predatory capitalism and, and, and advocating for women's rights and yeah. so forth. Yeah. So, yes, it's a reclamation, something we've lost for most, more than a century, it seems to me. Somebody else. Howard, please. Pre and post yeah. millennialism. So, millennialism, yeah. Um, it's, it's, it's fascinating to me that most of you don't know what the term means. But I, this, growing up in this world, this, this was, this, these were life and death conversations about whether you're pre-millennials or post-millennials. Um, and so when I think about kind of the concerns and where they might converge, um, in order to save souls scalably, you probably need to be concerned about like social issues, right? Yeah, I, mean, I think so. <laughs> you know, if I'm a pre millennialists, I guess I could try to like save the soul of every person that I meet every single day. That's not many people. And I probably would be have access to all the people that I meet in general. And if I'm a post, um, you might get so caught up in trying to fix like larger problems that you don't actually save any souls yeah. in that thousand years sure. that I guess we have. Right. Um, so like, yeah, like where, where do you see the line in the sand between being in, I guess, 
internally community people in your life focus and kind of broader picture? Well, I don't think it's an either or question. And, and you look at the look at Jesus. Jesus uh, Jesus ministered to individual needs uh, as well as to the to the soul and to the inner inner person. Uh, and and his his encounter with them was transformative. Transformative not only in a spiritual realm, but also uh, for many of them in a physical realm in terms of healing and and and, and so forth. So I, I you know again that's the example that I would hold up. Uh, I, I don't think it's an either or situation. Part of what you do in your study is you, you mentioned how theology has this significant impact on how people actually act and behave. Yeah. Now, that sounds like a very oversimplified statement, but um, my question is, are there any theologies that you see now that are emerging in kind of this new era of Christianity hmm. that has potentially negative impacts um, for how we actually practice, yeah. given that historical context, right? Yeah, I mean, the, the shift from post to premillennialism had massive social implications for how we behaved in this world. Okay. So what are the theologies that you might see today that could have potential ramifications that are anti-gospel, but yet they're the theologies that are popular or they're running around? And <laughs> Wow, that's a good question, Kevin. I, uh... I'm probably going to shirk the question because I'm not a theologian. I don't know that I, I, don't know that I can answer that. Um, um, I, I guess one one example that came to mind is literalism. That yeah. the 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 sure. many of us and I've had many conversations with people in in our church here about coming from a place where the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles sure. it, sure. which means that if the Bible says something very specific ab- about women's place in the church. That's just the way it is, and so we, we don't allow certain behaviors. So yeah. literalism is kind of an example that comes sure. to mind. And yeah. No, I, I think that's an example of, of missing the forest for the trees. It, it's, it, you know, when I read the New Testament, Jesus is always kind of busting through barriers. And, and, and who, who are the people who he tangles with? He's tangling with the legalists. Yeah. And and the, the scribes and the Pharisees. I have to be careful. We're in a Jewish synagogue here, um, but um, and, and and I'm not and I'm I'm not saying that to to demean the scribes, the Pharisees, or Judaism sure. generally. Please understand that. It's, but but Jesus brings a different way of seeing, different way of 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 being in the world, and and he's always clashing with them because they're they're saying yeah look here we got you you know we, we you know you were healing on the sabbath and jesus said yeah i was healing on the sabbath isn't that a good thing this person was healed and they said no you can you can't do that cuz you you violated the law and and jesus is always violating the law it seems to me he's he's always I mean, he says he you know he's asked um about the law. He says, I've come to fulfill the law, but he breaks beyond it. He always, he always does that. What's the Sermon on the Mount all about? I mean, you know, um, uh, Jesus talks about the impossibility of keeping the law, right? Mm-hmm. You've heard it said, thou shalt not kill. I tell you, if you hate your brother, it's just bad as having killed him. You know, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. If you look on a woman with lust, well, vice versa, uh, it's, just, it's just the same as having uh, adulterous relationships, uh, and he's always breaking through those barriers. It seems to me. Yeah. 
Please. Could you flip your question and ask, uh, I will ask you, do you see any theologies out there today that are encouraging to you? Any movements? Yeah. Um, sure. I, I, I don't know if I'd call them theologies, but there, there is, a, I think, a growing... Um, movement, a, a groundswell of people who are trying to recover the gospel and, and, and trying to recover, recover the, the radical world, words of Jesus and, and try to, trying to appropriate them. Um, you know, there have been people out there for a long time, people like Jim Wallace and Tony Campolo and, 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 uh, and others, but a younger generation now is coming in uh, to that uh, cohort People like Shane Claiborne, Rachel Held Evans, I think probably would be in that group as well, from what I understand. Um, so I'm not sure it's a theological movement, but it's an attempt to reappropriate the gospel and to apply it to to the 21st century, which is what we're always asked to do. It seems to me. In your book, "Mine Eyes Have Seen the Glory," you use the term "second generation evangelical," and that was a really fascinating term for me because. We use first and second generation to describe immigrants and, sure. and their children, et cetera. Sure. Um, we have a lot of children in our church, a ton of them. Yeah. More on the way. Well done, everybody. Um, I, my question is, the, you've written about how second generation evangelicals have in many ways rejected or, or had to contend with the, the faith of their parents sure. in such a way as to make it their own um, and especially as generations move on, even now, um, people are talking about how peop- uh, evangelicals, younger e- evangelicals are leaving and they're not coming back. Sure. Right. My question is, given your historical work uh, of that generational kind of passing down, what can you share with parents today <laughs> uh, about the lessons that we learn yeah. about passing this faith yeah. down? I mean, this faith that is really critical, really important to us and I think to sure. the world to get this right. Sure. We, how do we raise our children? Yeah, it's a it's a great question. I don't. Um, I, I wish I had a better answer for it. But uh, I, I wrote about this in in one of the chapters in Monazzi and the Glory. I went to uh, a Word of Life camp up in the Adirondack Mountains of of New York, uh, Jack, Jack Wurtson's camp up there, and. Uh, that I, I've had more let, more mail about that chapter over the years than anything I've ever written. I, mean, I just get, I still get letters about this. What I was trying to do in that in that chapter is talk about the quandary of second generation of evangelicals. So what happens is you have you have parents who come into the faith many times with a dramatic conversion uh, right. moment or or story, and you know part of the the. Uh, the ethos of many evangelical congregations, I don't know if that's the case here or not, because I don't know you well enough, is that part of what you do is you share your stories, right? You, you, you talked about your, which is, you know, it's wonderful. That's what the Gospels are all about, right? The Gospels are stories of people's encounter with, with Jesus, and that's what we should be doing as, as people of faith. So you have the parents who have this dramatic conversion, and then you have the children come along later, and the, the parents wanting to be good, responsible parents, you know, what do they do? Well, they socialize them in the church, right? Yeah. Send them to Sunday school, uh, you know, or, or in my generation, send them to Bible camp or you know, whatever, conferences or weekend right. retreats and something like that. Uh, have devotions in the home uh, and so forth. And yet, 
you still expect them at some point to have this dramatic conversion that you had as a parent, right? right? As, uh, for the first generation. Well, you can't. The kids can't. I mean, there's no way you can. You, 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 your conversion is merely ratifying the lifestyle that you've been born with yeah. and, 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 and reared with. And so what I tried to do in that chapter was, was show how this works in Bible camp. So I, the, final, the final scene is, is a campfire. It's actually fictional, and I, I acknowledge that. It's, not, I'm not, it's a, a fictional campfire. And you know, the first person around the camp, uh, during the, the campfire service says, you know, I gave my heart to Jesus this week, and everybody applauds or whatever they do and, and, and you know, appreciates the story. And then the next person said, stands up and said, I gave my heart to Jesus last year at camp. And I was resolved to be a good Christian, take my Bible to school and, and pray all the time and so forth. But I fell away from the faith. But now I'm, I'm going to rededicate my life to Jesus. And I'm going to get it right this time. And then you hear another story similar to that and, and, and so forth. And you begin to see a pattern. I think it's this second generation evangelicals who are trying again and again to reappropriate that moment so that it has the kind of power over them that their parents talked about right. with their own experiences. But you can't do that. It's, it's just, they have a different, different approach to life. And this is something that I think is, is near universal for people of faith. Uh, we talked about the Puritans earlier. Uh, you had a great crisis in New England in the 17th century. Here you had uh, this band of Puritans who in, 17, in 1630 made this perilous Atlantic crossing to carve this godly commonwealth out of the howling wilderness of Massachusetts. And when it came time for, the second, for their children, the second generation, to take their place in the meeting house, to stand in front of the congregation and talk about their spiritual experience, they couldn't do it. They right. just, how, how can my story compare with that of my parents and my parents' generation? Uh, I didn't make that perilous Atlantic crossing. You know, I didn't have this, this the kind of exodus experience and so forth. And so what happens in Puritan New England is that there's this great crisis. I mean, it's, you know, it's well documented um, that the, the second generation is not becoming full members of the church. Right. And so you know, the Puritans devise something called the halfway covenant, which is a, really a compromise on their whole faith and their whole enterprise because the second generation cannot muster the... the the, uh, uh, the piety of their parents' generation. Another great example of this, again, we're in a Jewish context here, um, Heim Potok's novel, The Chosen, which is beautiful, illustrates this beautifully. It's, it's a story about a Hasidic Rebbe, and he wants desperately to pass the mantle of leadership for his congregation onto his very precocious son. The son knows the, the Talmud and the Torah you know, backwards and forwards, can recite these obscure passages from the, from the, the Torah just you know, on command. But he can't muster the piety. Right. And uh, you know, the, the, the novel ends with this very poignant walking away of the son from the faith and out into this larger world. It's very difficult. Now, you asked me to be prescriptive about what to do. You know, I wish I were... I wish I were uh, more qualified to do it. I, I, I think. I, I think parents need to be a role model in so many ways, but in terms of the faith as well. That is to, to allow their children to see their own struggles with the faith. Mm -hmm. um, you know, my favorite passage from the New Testament 
is the, the parent of a, a young boy who tells Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. Yeah. I love that. Because for me, doubt is not the antithesis of faith. Yeah. Doubt is the essential component of faith. Yeah. If we've got it all figured out, which, by the way, is what the inertists wanted to do in the 19th right. century. If we've got it all figured out, why do we need faith, right. right? Faith is this wonderful thing. It's this leap into the darkness when we don't have all the answers. And I think if our children can see us with that sort of struggle, it provides a model for their own, yeah. their own uh, questings awesome. yeah. and, 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 and spiritual wanderings. We, we just had Dr. Peter Enns on his book, The Sin of Certainty. He, he was just here ah, sharing ah. on essentially that topic. So I think Is you, that right? you're speaking to a group that's very much embracing of, I of see. that okay. idea. So thank okay. you. Okay, it is 7 o'clock. So.